Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the uh, program that talks about all sorts of current issues, including, uh, uh, my, I have to tell you this, Gary, um, my, I used to say we talk about women's issues, and my daughter um, chided me and said there are no such things as women's issues. There are just people issues. <laughs> so, you know, yay for my daughter. I, I'll take some credit for that. Um, but uh, we talk about the issues that are important in, in uh, gender equality and violence, uh, interpersonal violence, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, with me today... I have um, Gary um, Barker, and Gary Barker, we've been chatting uh, before the show started, and he's a very interesting man, and I think you're going to really enjoy this show. Gary wrote, uh, came to my attention because he wrote uh, an article for the Shriver Report, and the article was called The Crisis in Manhood that goes far beyond Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger, of course, being one of our most recent uh, uh, mass shooters, and um, intrigued me because right in the second paragraph he says, why are we creating so many angry young men? And I'm going, okay, society is doing this? Is is this what this is all about? And then another quote that really um, got to me is that, I'm not finding the exact quote right now, but basically you said killers are not um, born, we beat them into it. And, um, wow, fascinating quotes. Uh, really leaves me with something to think about. So we're going to talk about Gary, and he also is involved in some pretty interesting international work uh, when it comes to uh, men. And I'm going to let Gary introduce himself. Gary, tell us a little bit about yourself and Promundo. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist, been looking at young men and their pathways to violence for a very long time, um, did my... Part of my dissertation research in Chicago, looking at young men and gangs in different parts of Chicago, and then lived in Brazil for 15 years, and particularly working in favelas and looking at young men and particularly the the pathways that led some young men into violence and some that stayed out of it. And we built a a not-for-profit organization around that work that does training and research and technical assistance now um, in five offices around the world. I'm now based in our Washington, D.C. office where we coordinate our stuff outside of Brazil. So we do a lot of work with the U.N., World Bank, national governments, other NGOs on how do we engage men and boys as voices for change, questioning violence, and giving voice to the nonviolence that's just as prevalent and, in fact, a lot more prevalent than the violence um, and trying to make sense of it. So how do we... How do we avert, um, whether it's gang-related violence in favelas in Rio or work that we do around in conflict-affected communities in parts of Africa, and then how do we kind of make some noise as well around some of the tragic incidents that are, that are happening in this part of the world? Okay. And uh, you have traveled extensively uh, with this work, which is uh, pretty interesting to me as well, because we're not looking at it just from our own backyard standpoint. We're looking at it, you're looking at it, from a whole worldwide perspective, which lets us know that this uh, problem, uh, this phenomenon uh, with uh, difficulties uh, for young men is worldwide. It's not just, just America or just uh, Canada. It's, it's just a worldwide phenomenon. I want to tell our audience that we would love to hear your comments and to have you join our conversation. Please call us at 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And uh, Gary, tell me about the article that that really uh, moved me that you wrote recently for... um, the Shriver Report, and I've seen it reprinted in several other um, places. What yeah. moved you to write this article? Um, you know, I think, you know, watching this, you know, the we can we can sort of clock until when is the next school shooting in the U.S., right? And kind of trying to make sense of, there are lots of other researchers, of course, and folks trying to make sense of it and trying to figure out from a prevention point of view, how do we make sense of it? I think as I as I watched this recent one and one, you know, as we looked at Elliot Roger, I mean, he documented so much of what he was thinking, assuming that really is what he was thinking. And 
I witnessed a, a shooting in my high school cafeteria back in 1977 in Houston, where my family was living at the time. This was far, you know, a long time before we called them um, high school shootings. They were, you know, they didn't they didn't make the news for being. Um, it, it certainly wasn't as many weapons. It was one boy killing another boy. Um, so it, you know, it was a it was one incident. But I, you know, remember in thinking, you know, what 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 is it that continues to lead to the cycle of almost always young men? Um, they're, you know, it's certainly armed men, young men who have access to weapons, and thinking about what is this toxic mix that seems to keep reproducing this. And I think what I say in the article, and I think it's important to acknowledge as well, is that you know the vast majority of killings in this country are not um, young, you know, middle middle class men in schools. The majority of our killings are in our low income neighborhoods where this toxic mix of poverty and and families that are stressed by generations of poverty um, are part of the equation. So I think it's also important to acknowledge that most of the homicide problem in the U.S. is not necessarily the school killings. But at the same time, I'm trying to say, so what's going on? Certainly in Elliot Rogers' words, you know, his, his very clear articulation of feeling that he never lived up to this version of what it meant to be a man. Now, that, that certainly doesn't drive... There's lots of men who feel like they're constantly in this contest to be richer, faster, smarter, more handsome, have more money in the pocket than the guy next to them. That's, you know, that's part of what manhood is too often constructed around. And lots of men who may feel they don't live up to some idealized notion of being a man, but they don't go off and commit murder. So clearly there's a lot of other stuff going on, but it's not by chance that it's young men and that it's men who are doing this. And I think we've got to figure out, we know it's not biological, so how do we understand what it is that creates this toxic version of masculinity that goes with really difficult childhoods, that goes with kind of a dismantling of a mental health system in this country, an isolation in, in the case of Elliot Roger and many of the young men we look at, socially isolated, stuck in Internet and blogs and um, finding all kinds of you know made-up and real universes within within the internet that doesn't correspond with what they need in real life. And we've got to figure out what's going on with schools that have become too often places of surveillance and control and not of real deep human connection. Um, I think I say that in fewer words in the article, but those are the key points. Yeah, yeah. And again, I believe that after the statement you made about killers aren't born, we beat them into it. You're not saying you know they're made. You're saying we beat them into it, and that's a powerful statement. How are we beating boys into being killers? Um, you know, the the wherever we we look of men who use different forms of violence, so whether it's domestic violence, sexual violence, um, armed violence against other men, I mean, the, as we you know whether we look at household surveys we have or interviews testimonies that we have with men who have used violence, violence begets violence. I mean, that's the, that's the simple equation that household studies we've done in some 11 countries across the world, about 80% of men tell us they experienced some form of significant violence during childhood. That was either a victim of bullying, some violence in the home, some violence in their community, some violence in their school. And the, you know, the list, of course, could go on. Lots of us have experienced, witnessed some kind of violence, and we don't go on to use it. But for, you know, for a lot of men and boys, that mix of we, we raise you that you've got to be tough enough, you've got to man up, you've got to experience that violence and not complain about it, the silence that we make around that because we're not allowed to step out and say, wait a minute, I was really hurt by what I saw, what I felt, yeah. what happened on my own body. You know, we create this toxic mix that too much of how we raise boys is based in violence. Add to that mix, you know, the causality is, is indirect for sure, but add to that mix, you know, our kind of glorification of violence and in the media and in games that, you know, that boys in particular spend huge amounts of hours playing. And we get this, you know, this really, really confused way of how we look at violence, um, particularly for men and boys, but certainly women and girls are part of that too. So 
So I think it is important that it, it would be easy simply to blame there's somehow a bad seed in some boys and men out there, as opposed to acknowledging just how much we invest in using violence against boys for all kinds of ways. You know, in our criminal justice system, I mean, I've spent a number of years living in, in Brazil, which, you know, incarcerates and assassinates a huge number of low-income men every year. I mean, the state acts in very violent ways. In the U.S., of course, we know the statistics of how many men of color who we lock up. And so our, even our approaches to try to resolve the issue. Certainly there's public safety issues we've got to think about. There are moments when the state does need to incarcerate folks. Um, but our first response has been instead of what kind of help do you need to get out of the violence that's led you to be violent, we're kind of stepping straight into a um, using, you know, kind of for forms of repression that too often recreate violence rather than figuring out what is it that's leading to those first forms of violence from early childhood on that are the motor of what ends up later on often, too often, being lethal violence. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the violent games. We, there's no question that we live in a violent society. I mean, everywhere you turn around, and I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, and I remember when, you know, uh, gun smoke would have a shootout in the street. You never saw blood and gore, you know. I mean, yeah, you realized, it, but it was more like it was pretend. You know, um, and now I mean everything from the movies to you know the the video games are just so explicitly violent, um, and uh, there is a lot of study and a lot of controversy over whether you know what part those particular what what part the media plays in um, um, violence and perpetrating violence. Um, what's your opinion on that? Do you feel that you know these the that, that we are perpetrating violence by showing violence? You know, that, that I, I think we've, it's not as if it's a, it's a direct cause and effect. And so, I, you know, I think we're never going to have a study that, you know, makes the absolute connection that if you watch this many hours, you're X percent ch chance more likely to carry out a certain form of violence. You know, the, the, the world is too complex to work, and our brains as human beings is too complex to operate are too you know are too complex to operate on those simple lines, but that we that we know there's a you know that we kind of inure ourselves that we reduce the sense of being shocked about it that it that it becomes normal that we and in fact you know some of the studies in terms of showing the neurological effect of what happens when you pump the brain full you know when the brain gets pumped full of cortisol and kind of creates a numbing effect. So, you know, I think we do believe that physiologically and socially there's something going on there. It's clearly not the only thing. Um, not all boys who watch it, you know, go on to become bullies or carry out certain forms of violence or buy guns. You know, so we have to acknowledge that we're also capable with our brains to question it, to make different meanings of it, to, to separate our lives. That's this fun, fake thing I do, and then I go over to a world where people treat each other well and they're nice to each other. If, if however, we're watching that toxic stuff and we step out and our real life is also a place where there's lots of bullying and shaming and a lack of the care and connection that we need to thrive as young people, you know, I think we add to that toxic mix. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, if we look at our own lives in terms of how we act in our intimate relationships or how we treat our children, you know, of course we remember moments we've seen in a movie or something else where we find ourselves repeating. You know, we, we are created in part by those things we see in Hollywood. Um, so it would be naive to say they don't do anything. Um, and I think it's, you know, that becomes the easy thing to say because we don't want to take on big media and big games. Um, at the same time, it's too simplistic to say they're the cause. They're not the cause. They are a factor. They're a contributor, you know. Um, yeah. Okay. So, again, I want to throw out our phone number. I'd love to hear some experiences and some comments from our audience. 646-378-0430. That's 646 I have to tell you, Gary, that um, I grew up in a, in a very female environment. My uh, father um, was one of uh, seven children, and he was the only boy. So he had a very female perspective on life, uh, which I didn't fully appreciate until I went out into the real world and found out how unique he was. Um, my sister and I were, you know, female, even the cat and dog were female. And um, it was kind of a shock for me when I really went out into the real world and saw that people fought differently 
Um, so I was used to a man, uh, my model, you know, my role model as a, uh, for a man was a man who was uh, uh, in some ways very macho. I mean, he worked pouring iron, he was a steel worker, you know, that kind of thing. And he worked at a gas station and he fixed cars. But he was also the guy who would uh, cook dinner and uh, comb our hair. And, you know, he was kind of before his time. And so that was the model yep. I had. And when I had my, my first child, he was a boy. And I thought, boy, what do I know about boys? I know nothing about boys. <laughs> you know, why do I have a boy? And, uh, you know, if you believe in fate, I think there was a reason that I got a boy, because he taught me so much about the way society, um, the expectations for boys. Um, simple example, my, my daughter and my son and I would go into a, a store uh, oh, say a, a jewelry store, okay? And uh, the, um, I don't say moderator, the, the uh, storekeeper would look at my daughter and say, how cute, how cute here, you can have one of these little charms. Meanwhile, my son is standing there. He's cute too, he's adorable. He's got little blonde curls and dimples, you know. But nobody's giving him anything, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I go into a store with my uh, daughter, and everything's fine, and sales clerk smile. And I go in with my son, and I'm kind of, like, monitored. And if he reaches for something, he's a very gentle kid, you know. He, would, he knew how to, yeah. how to you know, touch something without throwing it around. And yeah. he even made a move towards something. Oh, oh, you know, don't touch the things, don't touch them. Yeah. And yeah. you know the the whole attitude surround even in school surrounding my son was a shock to me, a complete shock to me. Um yeah. fortunately my son is very much like his grandfather was and, and you know, he's a gentle soul. He's also, you know, doing the manly man stuff, but he's uh, he's a, a good human being without all that macho nonsense going on. Um Yeah. Why why do we treat little girls so differently from little boys? Why do we treat little <laughs> That's boys the age so differently from little girls? Yeah. The age old questions, right? I mean repeating I mean I think you know what your story illustrates with Wait, your father you and your son is just No, if it were if it were so easy we would have overcome it a long time ago because it causes harm, right? I mean but I, I think what we, I mean, I think the, the, the simple answer is that it, it's simpler that way. If we could think that we're born, you know, that it's all biology, right? That we're, that's just the way the world is, that we're all, you know, that men have to act like this and women have to act like this. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a notion we've been carrying around for some, you know, 6,000, 7,000 years. But it doesn't correspond with just how malleable we are as we're growing up. And so, you know, your dad could be both do kind of stereotypical male things and do stereotypical female things, and he wasn't a confused guy. That made sense to him, right? So, you know, yes, I think it's absolutely. so easy for folks to – pardon? Yeah, absolutely made sense to him. Yeah. And, and you know, I think it, it's so easy for – among all the things that we're confused about, right, as parents or kind of, you know, acting in the world – it somehow gives people this comfort if they can think in these simple boxes that boys and men are this way and women and, gr women and girls are this way. You know, it, that, that requires far less thinking <laughs> than it does to go, wait a minute, every individual has a mix of stuff going on and it's part biology and it's part nurture and it's probably much more nurture than it is biology and there's no way that I can characterize this guy because he's male and there's no way I can characterize this woman because she's a woman. We've, you know, feminism did amazing things for us to, to get to the point that you know, there was nothing that women couldn't do because of being biological fem you know, female. It's taken us, I don't think we've achieved it with men to recognize that being biological male, being biological male doesn't keep us from knowing how to nurture or from being kind <laughs> or from mm -hmm. you know, being delicate or combing our daughter's hair or for cooking dinner. You know, it's taking us a lot longer to realize this biological makeup isn't, you know, it's not destiny. Um, it's destiny in terms of what our bodies do at some level, but you know even that's you know pretty common between women and men of what we're biologically capable of, apart from childbirth and breastfeeding and you know some physical strength that men have on average a little bit more of. The rest is all made up. Um, but if I mean, you know I think parents are frightened by that. <laughs> 
wait, you mean (laughs) there's all this stuff that's confusing? I mean, it it does require you to be a much more confused but alert parent if you look at the world in that that more complex way. Yeah. Well, I also think that... um, not only is it easier for parents, but it, it assures them. If they can follow the stereotypes, we all worry about our children. How are they going to turn out? Are they normal? Are they healthy? Are they this and that? Yeah. If we had a clear yardstick, as we have made for gender, um, if we had a, a yardstick as, as, as uh, clear as that for everything else, you know, mental development and uh, school for performance and all that kind of stuff, well, wouldn't that be easy? We could just check it off. Right. And, you know. Uh, you know, so, uh, but on the other hand, a lot of these um, expectations for gender harms um, harms the, uh, yeah. the the individual. You know, and yeah. it's uh, very difficult. I think very difficult. Well, let's get back to the school shooting thing. Uh, we are. I'm in Seattle, and we had a an, an, an situation yesterday. Uh, another school shooting. It was at uh, a small university. And uh, one student dead, four were shot. So this is, but wherever you look, you can find one of these every day somewhere. Um, it's it's just a, a horrible thing to contemplate that that uh, first of all somebody could be so um, distressed, emotionally upset, uh, mentally ill, whatever you want to tag it as. It's upsetting to think that some young person could do this. It's also upsetting to realize that it happens so much in schools. Why schools? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I try, you know, in in a very short way, I try in the article to, you know, to say it's not by chance that it's schools, right? I mean, so what are we doing about, you know, one, I think those that are university shooting, I mean, for, for universities, there's a, you know, there's a huge step from, you know, the kind of more controlled environment of home and at least you know, I mean, obviously huge differences between how parents are able to connect to and support their adolescent children and, um, you know, there's huge ranges in what that looks like. But, you know, the university is this kind of go for it. You're on your own. We toss you out into the world. Some, you know, some young people quite ready and capable to deal with that and, you know, adoring the freedom that comes with that and others just utterly lost. And particularly if they left high school with a sense of not really sure where I'm headed I'm not really sure I came from an environment that supported me for this. I'm not really sure if emotionally I'm ready to go with all the responsibility that comes. I'm not sure how I connect to people out there, male, female, whatever my sexual orientation is. And then in high school, we've got to figure out, you know, there may be something wrong with this model of how many young people we put in these big buildings and how many we put in classrooms. Um, you know, that what what is going on at schools that we're creating, you know, we're so worried about the core curriculum now of making sure we've got the core competencies, which are, of course, important. I'm not minimizing those at all. But, I, you know, it, it feels to me like we need something that goes with it that says, how do we make sure that we've connected to every single student? What are sort of, you know, if we can come up with minimum standards for what you need to read and get by in math and and make it in the workplace, you know, how how do we also spend as much time and much energy, maybe more, um, on on how to make sure you're emotionally connected to others, that you've got the nurturing and the support that you need to make it in the world. Um, I said at the beginning of the interview that I, I trained it as a developmental psychologist, which is what my doctorate's in, and I, one of, you know, the professors I mo- most liked talking about early childhood development she said you know there's very few children who don't learn how to read <laughs> you know we are our, our, ling- our linguistic capacity our ability to speak and to read is really pretty easy to teach children <laughs> getting along is the really hard part <laughs> um, and I think that's so simple and so obvious but why don't we invest more time in you know sometimes we call this social emotional learning there are folks studying a lot of that there are programs like roots of empathy being rolled out in schools in, in Canada and some other parts of the world are looking at it, you know, that we, that we also explicitly try to make part of the classroom experience. If we're spending so much time away from our children and schools are charged with taking care of them, there's some things that schools need to somehow replicate if our kids are spending so much time in these big kind of anonymous settings. We've got to figure out ways that we provide adequate mental health support, which we've all but gutted in schools and in the country as a whole, except for kind of in the most extreme cases and in our kind of, you know, 12 sessions that are paid by managed care. 
you know, we've really gutted mental health as it takes place in schools and as it takes place as a public health or as a, as a health service. And then to figure out what is, you know, what about the emotional life of young people in schools needs as much attention as we're putting to the academic and cognitive life of children. Um, so that's, you know, that's, those are big stuff to, to take on. But, and then at the same time, I think most of the political responses become let's, arm more students. I think in the Seattle one, people are praising, which is great that, you know, another student intervened. But you also want to say, well, let's celebrate that. Yeah, it could have, it could have been worse. So great they intervened, but we've got to figure out it's not students' jobs to do that. (laughs) It's not arming teachers. It's not teachers' jobs to deal with armed students. It's teachers' jobs and fellow students' jobs to deal with how do we connect to each other? um, And how do we provide the support? How do we know when one of our community is is failing i mean what what kind of loneliness and solitary lives do we lead that you couldn't as a parent or as a fellow student see that that person next to you was so far off the deep end that they could snap tomorrow and go out and carry out a mass killing i mean that's that's a real denouncement of where we are in terms of just being connected to the folks next to us yeah your comment bring up two questions for me one is is that the school's role? Um, over the last few decades, we've seen schools, uh, you know, the emphasis is still there about, um, you know, academic performance and academic, but there's also more and more and more of uh, socialization um, issues being taught in school from, you know, sex ed to uh, bullying um, to you name it. Um, so we have seen a trend with schools where we're moving more and more into uh, expecting schools to train our children not just academically but also socially. Um, and um, when, well, I forgot my second question. So can you respond to that one? Yeah, so you know, I think it, it is a challenge for, you know, can schools do the – can we put everything in a curriculum, right? And can you teach? Can you teach empathy? Can you teach um, emotional connection? Can you teach how to express yourself and communicate emotionally and and in meaningful ways? You know, in a classroom setting. <laughs> I think there's a big question of are those two things, you know, kind of really really opposed to each other? Can they be done? You know, maybe the the, the question is how to create where schools don't become you know, we've got to put this on the curriculum, so in five sessions we're going to teach you empathy. I mean, that's a, that's a ridiculous, it, it just sounds ridiculous as a notion. These are things that we learn in, in, in connection and relationships and communication with others and in practicing life. Um, but, it, you know, what, what might we do to create schools that feel like communities, that feel like we're responsible for each other, that we're aware when another one is in serious trouble? So maybe it's not about putting social-emotional learning in the curriculum, but figuring out what it is in the in the structure of a school that that creates a sense of community. My daughter went to a to a really progressive um, private school in Brazil before we moved to Washington a few years back, and they would resolve problems. They took a indigenous um, tradition from Brazil of you would meet at the end of every day in the hut, basically. So it was the it was the place at the top of the school. It was set up in a circle everybody's, you know, it's a democratic process, everybody's in a circle, and you talk through the day, and you would talk through problems, and if there had been a fight, or there had been somebody got upset or hurt by this or that, that was sort of the the public accounting for it, and not in a, we're going to blame you for this, but kind of listening to, we're here as a community, what happened today, if there was something good, we shared it, if there was something that harmed somebody, we shared it, you know, how do you, I mean, that's just one small practice, but how do you basically build into schools the practice of community, not simply put it in the curriculum and say, today we talk about the principles of, um, but actually put it into a daily practice of what schools could look like. Well, I think that's a great idea. Um, I have a hard time understanding how in, in our, in most of this country, uh, we're cramming, you know, several hundred students, if not several thousand, into schools. Um, yeah. Teachers, counselors—they don't even know who the student is unless the student creates yeah. some sort of problem. Or, or right. you know, I, I think it must be impossible to create that kind of um, communication and empathy when you don't even know this crowd that you're you're in. Um, yeah. And yet, the tendency is to do more, more and more students per building. Um, it just seems con- counterproductive to me. 
So, yeah, no, I uh, absolutely agree. And I think where, you know, the, the programs that we see that seem to work are seem to be this, and, and particularly the schools where, you know, kids come out with the best, you know, again, I think that the same things work for academic achievement that work for the, you know, the social and emotional side of it, which is smaller classrooms, less burdened teachers, investing in teachers who have enough training, who feel calm in their jobs, who are able to invest individual attention as well as small enough groups where there's group learning, you know, the, the, and some of the university programs that have figured out the need to support, say, uh, more academically challenged students or children who, youth who came from more disadvantaged backgrounds, what they're finding is creating that, those small communities to support them through. Um, so, so I think that's, that's it. There are ways that we can create sort of small spaces within these big spaces, but I think we do have to ask ourselves every time we build, you know, the structure that's bigger and taller and houses 5,000 students and where they spend most of their life there. So if they're, you know, if they're spending six to eight hours a day there, they're seeing, you know, their mom and dad over the dinner table perhaps for an hour and a half every evening because mom and dad are working, you know, more hours to be able to, mom and dad or whoever's doing the caregiving, right, is, is spending more hours working to make less than probably their parents did. You know, you create the situation where schools are responsible for more and more of that time and they're kind of just processing individuals coming through um, because they get in more trouble if they cause harm then they get praise if they do good. So I think you know, there is yeah. something around you know the way those the systems are set up that we've got to got to do big questions about. Mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. I hear most people um, talk with uh, students in school talking about technology and access to technology. Um, Grade point averages, um, you know, a lot of emphasis on good grades, good grades, um, to the point where I, and I speak as a former public school teacher, um, where I think that um, we're kind of being phony with our grades. That makes sense? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I taught briefly at one school that prided itself on... Um, uh, something like seventy-five percent of the students were above average. Well, <laughs> no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. that's impossible. Um, and yet, you know, they created their own little skewed bell, bell curve there um, because right. the parents wanted those good grades so the kids could get into a good college. And my kids are in their 20s, and even when I was raising my children, it used to astound me that people, you know, had their kids' lives planned out. They were going to have this teacher for grade five. They were going to have that teacher. They were going to take this course. They were going to go to that college and become this, you know, doctor, lawyer, campus maker. And when people would ask me, well, what do you want your kids to be? I said, nice people and happy. Yeah. <laughs> emotional learning that is trying to say look you know these these qualities matter too you know we we worry if we keep up with south korea and finland and you know add the list of countries that we get worried about when they outperform us on standardized tests and the like um but yeah i think we could gain a little bit on and and those things do matter i mean we do you know we do want to prepare young people to come out and you know particularly for for disadvantaged families where you know if we're we're middle class we we have a good sense that our kids are going to make it they're going to be they're going to find a way out there somewhere um you know certainly for 
disadvantaged families, you know, we we do have to make a big push to make sure that the the access sure. to the job market and the skills are the skills are all there. But you know, I think while we also worry about test scores, you know, maybe we ought to scratch our heads a little bit and say, um, yeah, but have we you know helped create um, well connected, well rounded, um, emotionally mature and emotionally intelligent young people as well, instead of just being good at taking one kind of standardized test. Um, so it's you know there's there are lots of folks talking about it. I think it you know the the challenge becomes um, when you have to scale it up because you run a whole county or a whole state's education system. Um, you know there, there's something about the the community connection to school and making it more you know I go back to the issue of how do we make schools into communities and I think the those seem to be when you know when you look at numbers when you look at test scores when you look at um, students who achieve interesting stuff coming out of schools, the importance of, you know, somebody they connected to, a teacher who inspired them, you know, they're not going to talk about, oh, the curriculum had it, you know, of course, those things matter, what's on the curriculum, what you could get access to. Um, but but usually they're going to remember um, someone, something they did in a group, some small group they were they were part of, and some teacher who gave them, you know, a sense of, we looked at each other beyond the lesson plan. We connected up around a common interest. Um, and I learned, you know, in that relationship, I didn't learn because the curriculum made it interesting. I learned because somebody looked me in the eye, understood my interest in the issue, pushed, pushed my interest in the issue. That, you know, kind of those micro relationships are the stuff that, you know, gets people through school. And it's usually when, you know, of all the young people who don't go out and shoot, um, you know, that's probably the stuff that often has prevented them from going over the edge. A teacher who went, wait, there's something going on here. I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to figure out what's going on. I want to, you know, get in touch with a parent. Um, you know, that's the, that, I mean, we, you know, it'd be nice to have some headlines about how many kids don't go out and kill every day who feel utterly dejected <laughs> and lost in a system because there's some teachers and some others who connected up to them at moments when they might have been that one who went over the edge. Um, might be an interesting story to look at. There's got to be, be a way to find those too. Yeah, but we call it news because it's unusual. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I'm not sure everybody understands that, but... That's why it's news, because it's different than usual. Um, yep. You talk in your article about men who become killers generally have had toxic childhoods devoid of stable care and connection. That's pretty sweeping and pretty damning. What do you mean by toxic childhood devoid of stable care and connection? You know, the whether, whether, whether we look at... Um, you know James Gilligan's work on on uh, men who had carried out homicide, who were in Rikers in New York, or other folks who have who have done interviews, either psychiatric evaluations of or life history interviews with men in prison who have killed, um, or other interviews we have like that. What we see over and over again is that it's it's not easy to to overcome our human and our biological propensity to connect to others. Actually, the, while we can look at our, at our history and see how much we kill each other, actually there's a lot of us who survived because we mostly, as a species, get along with each other. <laughs> our our yes. desire for connection and our biological evolution has been toward um, a species that does a huge amount of stuff in cooperation that nurtures each other to, to grow up. And so our, you know, I think we need to flip it around a little bit and say it's, we're not biologically born to be killers. We're biologically born to be in connection with each other. And what, you know, what I think James Gilligan's research and others and some of mine as well find just how much effort it does require. I've done some interviews with child soldiers, for example, or combatants in parts of Africa, and just how much it does take to tear away or to rip off or to tear down our natural propensity not to harm others. The U.S. military and other militaries have to deal with this all the time. It takes a lot to turn a soldier into a killer. And there's reasons why the military does what it does that in some cases make it easier for soldiers to feel like they can pull the trigger. It's not easy for us to do that. And so I think what, where we look at young men who have gone out and, and, and done this, there's, it's not one particular incident. It's a whole – and, you know, as we look at the interviews with families afterwards, all the time there were signs there of something went wrong. Some of this could be biologically driven mental health issues. That happens too. 
But a lot of it, more of it, seems to be this either deliberate and ongoing shaming, abuse, violence, neglect at the household level. How many young people who go on to kill have been through our are shamelessly or are, are, are sh- that, that, that is, we should be ashamed of, of how much our child welfare system is a failure in much of the country. Um, so, if, you know, if we look at the stories of just how much it's been an issue of broken attachment, shaming, um, abuse of multiple forms, typically neglect, and the lack of adequate caregiving that we need from early childhood onward. Um, it doesn't mean that those who missed it in their zero to three, for example, growing up will automatically come out killers later on. But there is certainly an importance of did we establish the basic nurturing and caregiving that was needed in early childhood and did it continue on through our childhood? And as we look at the you know, the life trajectories of, of men who kill and they're 90 plus percent of those who do the killing, whether it's in combat or, or homicide or men, um, you know, we, ha- we, we see this combination of living up to these idealized and often violent versions of what it means to be men, living a sense of shame because you never achieve this version of manhood, because part of becoming a man is enduring the hazing rituals that another man puts upon you, and at the same time combine that with these childhoods that are often either full of certain forms of systematic abuse and neglect, or lacking of the kind of stable caregiving that most of us need to thrive. Um, So it's a a combination of those things. I don't think it's either only toxic childhoods. It's not only um, these versions of manhood that we put out there. It's also all this stuff mixed together. And in some, you know, it's not all the same for for the, 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 the reasons and the, and the stories that each man out there is killing, um, of course, each one of them is different. But I think those factors we often see are, are present. Yeah. So um, lots of reasons for all of those things, I would imagine. What is uh, – there's a parent out there who's going, wow, I, I, I have a five-year-old and I want to make sure that my child um, doesn't have this toxic childhood. What would be the most important thing they could do? Um, yeah, I think you said it before. <laughs> Does you know to let them be who who they are. Let them you know. I mean, when I say let them be who they are, obviously if they're causing harm to themselves and others, that's not part of the the who they are. I mean, you know, the kind of how can we be attuned to their to their daily needs? In the case of boys, can we let them express fear? and being ashamed, can we let them question this manhood box that too often we're put in, just as we want our daughters to be able to question a box that tries to tell them you know, that they have to perform certain ways to be considered attractive and interesting and, and that they have to you know, kind of use a certain high-pitched voice so they don't look too assertive or bossy. You know, we've got to help both boys and girls break out of that box every single day. Um, you know, being adequately connected to them without being a police so we're not sort of monitoring every breath they take but monitoring are they okay how are they how are they doing in terms of you know their their connections to others and their friendships and their what what's happening in the spaces where they're hanging out where I don't see them but not again like a metal detector or a camera monitoring their actions it's how do they feel about it what is what is happening to them when they're there Talking and listening, you know, I think most, most parents know how to do this stuff without giving, giving words to it. Um, so I think part is, you know, just, just how are we attuned in average ways? And I think we've also got to get beyond a sense of shame to ask for help. I think one of the challenges in, in this country, and particularly for, you know, for boys and men, we're not supposed to ask for help. So if we feel like we're losing control, um, you know, we're simply not supposed to ask for help. If we look at and we see the ramifications for that, for example, in suicide statistics, girls, young women are more likely to attempt suicide. Boys are three to four times more likely to actually carry it out. And one of the reasons we think is that boys and men don't think we can ask for help. Um, there's been a there's been an increase in suicide among men over the age of 40. Men suffering in the work market, not finding that they're having the space that, you know, men used to feel like they could be entitled to, they're not able to ask for help because psychologically the world, you know, they don't think the world allows them to ask for that help. So I would think the other is to say, you know, that we as parents to feel like it's okay for our boys and girls to ask for help. It's, it's okay to talk about being frightened. I don't know how to live up to this and not to say, you know, tough it up and go back out there. 
Um, no. There are moments that we well, have to say, a, sorry, yeah. Uh, that's a tough order for parents to help kids with that. I mean, it really is a tough order. Yeah. Um, anybody who's raised kids knows that, you know, they go through periods where they're very non-communicative and you're sitting there yeah. tearing your hair out trying to figure out what you can do, what's wrong, and what you can do to help them. And, um, you know, it's it's a tough, it is very tough um, to really, I think, raise children well. Um I often think about that. Remember that old Bill Cosby show about the the family. What do they call that? The the oh, the you know that show that he had. I think it was like twenty years ago, uh, where his whole family. Um, she was a, a lawyer, doctor, and he was a or he no, was a doctor. Huxbees, she was yeah, a lawyer, when they were right, know. the Huxbees or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I often thought, now if I could just give my children to that family and have them raise <laughs> right. them. I could, I would be pretty sure they're doing everything right, um, but short of that, um, I had to kind of have figure it out on my own, and uh, that is tough. It's a tough thing for parents to do, and yeah. then you throw in the trying to make the house payment or trying to make the rent, and yeah. it's very tough. Um, and I think that maybe that's why we're looking more and more to schools to help us with that that particular job. Um, one of the things that you talk about in your article is that true connection. How can you help a child make a true connection? What is a true connection? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think there, there's there's multiple layers there. Most of the time, children do it on their own. <laughs> I mean, if we yeah. if we create, you know, the the space and the time, and that there's you know there's a possibility of relationships between equals. Children don't have, you know, young people don't have problems making friends. The question is, are those friendships in a pressure cooker where I'm against you because we're racing to get, you know, the good, the the grade, the the girl? Um, you know, do we? I think much of that is about letting it happen and to acknowledge that is important. You know, as getting the good test scores. It goes back to stuff we were talking about before. Um, you know, so so I think it's partly about they they happen anyway. <laughs> Let's encourage them. The, you know, it's, it's also easy to, um, you know, the other easy one that we often harp on is, you know, sort of turning off the computer, turning off the Internet, putting down the phone for a little bit. I mean, this, this is the wired generation, right? Um, yes. But somehow to figure out as well where parents feel like there are moments where, although it's kind of nice that they're out of our hair for a little bit, that we do have to say, unplug it, turn it off, <laughs> Um, let's figure out a space where you, you know, connect and it's not with a, an electronic device involved. Um, certainly think that's one of them. And then I think, you know, there's issues around boys and girls that have to be talked about. One of our one, one colleague and friend of mine, Naomi Way, has a book called um, Deep Secrets, Boys and the Crisis of Connection. And she writes about something that lots of us have either experienced during boyhood or those who have sons. You know, watch how boys often have really, really close male friends, 13, 14, and then get a little bit older and the world says, no, you can't do that. That's, that's gay or that's, that's not what, you know, real men don't have those kind of close connections like that. Um, but, you know, that how do we empower uh, boys in particular to say it's actually okay to have a best guy friend. Um, it's okay to have deep friendships that, you know, you're, you're really hurt when one of them says something that, you know, caused you a bit of anguish. Um, we're okay about that. You don't have to sort of tough it up. And you know you don't, your life doesn't have to fall apart because of it, but that we that we are in tuned um, to the you know to the different ways that boys and girls may reach out in their friendships and how we sometimes try to cut those off. Um, so I think for the most part, boys and girls find those friendships with you know the world tries to tries to uh, cut them off. So it's you know it's being attuned. Do they have um, you know are we making opportunities to do it? I, I worry sometimes about our you know our culture of the play date. <laughs> Because we're we're so used to being in our kind of you know our single family boxes that we've got to set up a time, as opposed to you know spaces where friendships and connections between children just yeah. happen because we're hanging out in the same space, a park, yeah. a library, um, you know other spaces where you know a church if that's the you know if that's that's where you you hang out, you know how do we create spaces where it doesn't have to be. We've set up a play date for 525 this afternoon as opposed to we simply go to spaces where other people like us are hanging out and friendships happen. Um, so, again, I don't think there's a magic equation for it. I do think at the school level there are things that we should be able to, you know, to, to try to 
give some more definition of what it means at a school that you know a young person feels connected to every single day there is some moment for an individual interaction with somebody on the staff you know there's there's got to be ways that we can think through that and i think some good schools already try to do that the greeting the homeroom you know your base teacher there's lots of ways that schools have started to think about that um other ones i think it's you know it's, it's some common sense about you know making sure they turn off the electronics and they're connected to the real life out there, and that means that we have to have time as parents between, as you just said, our, you know, the hours we're working to try to make the mortgage and all that, that we've also got calm moments that we can go, you know what, we do need to just walk down to the park. There's another 25 kids there. There's other parents. If I don't know what to do about my son, maybe I can ask somebody else who's hanging out there. Um, you know, that sounds kind of Walt Disney-esque, dreamlike but it's it's what good communities look like it's what communities that people want to live in look like um so anyway that's a i don't think there's an easy answer to that one okay well you know i noticed gary that there's no easy answers to any of this (laughs) (laughs) if there was we would have figured it out a long time but i think there's at least (laughs) ways to think about it you know so if if anything i hope you know i hope my article is kind of going hmm it's of course, it's gun control, but not only that. Of course, it's better mental health, but not only that. Of course, it's something about the way we raise boys and men and the way that they emotionally isolate themselves and we contribute you know, to that. I think if, if we can at least get thinking in more sophisticated ways about this stuff, um, we might end up with solutions that are a little bit less, let's just lock them all up and, uh, and be done with it. I'd be happy if we got at least beyond that discussion. <laughs> um, well, it's it's exacerbated. The problem is exacerbated, of course, when you're talking single parent family, uh, when you're yeah. talking, you know, an economic status where you have to, you know, you're exhausted from working so hard trying to just put a roof over their heads. Um, all of these things just exacerbate these problems. And um, again, we look more and more to schools, but. Um, you know, if if we could look more and more to extended family, but even that is a, a difficult option for many people because we're not all around family. Um, you know, we we move. We're a mobile society, and uh, it, you know, this is a, this is tough. It's tough to parent a child. It's tough to meet yeah. a new person. Um, yeah. And I'm not <laughs> sure uh, we really appreciate the difficulty of, uh, you know, of turning out a new kid, you know, a new person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it's nothing to be sneezed at. Um, no. Yeah. Um, so, okay, and, so one of the things, going back to the schools, do you have any solutions for us? What can we do as parents um, if we have... Um, limited access to schools, if we have limited input into what they teach and how they teach it, what can we do to help our yeah. kids make connections? Well, the, you know, the other is, you know, the, it, as you said, maybe there's only, you know, there's, there's so many things we can do in schools, right? I mean, how many hours do you have to either be on the PTA or to run for school board or to you know, yep. it's we're, it's certainly easier to use that limited time to go after the individual problems that our children have, which I think are necessary, and we have to do them. You know, maybe the question is to say, how can we make sure that that we? I think another part of this equation is how do we make sure that we organize our lives as fathers and mothers to have the time that we need to be with our children, um, and to acknowledge that school can't do it all. Um, again, it sounds kind of like it, it sounds a bit like common sense, but I think you know the the kind of Flex work, you know, flexible work time, parental leave. We have atrocious. I think we're second to, I don't know, someplace like Yemen in terms of of family leave. The time that we give of parents for time off if a children is ill or has a problem or, um, or or during early childhood, right? When a child is born, you know, we get six weeks unpaid. Compare that to Canada, which now has moved toward a year paid for that can be divided between the mother and the father, kind of the Scandinavian model. I mean, how do we also create a world that's friendly to parents um, and to say schools can't do it all? Even when they're functioning well, they're only four or six hours a day, eight hours sometimes. You know, let's, what do we need that parents feel they've got the time that they can, you know, the, close the computer, 
leave the leave the factory floor, leave the store, wherever they're working, head home and have the time that's there because there's nothing that substitutes that. Um, have the time, you know, to have the flexible time so there's an extra half an hour if it's leaving the child at an extended family member. Um, you know, we've we've got such a work workaholic culture. And our, you know, our time use studies just show how limited the amount of face-to-face time that parents have with children, particularly after the, you know, kind of after the middle school years. Um, but if, you know, if anything, we know that the, the time, you know, the, time, the face-to-face time becomes perhaps even more important during the adolescent years. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important not to put it all in schools and to, you know, to say, okay, let me see if I can do my part. I want to hold teachers accountable and, uh, you know, if I've got the hours to try to hold schools accountable – the best I can, but what can I do outside of all that? Um, and you know, where we see kids make it, it's parents who are who are able to, you know, they've got they've got the support they need to be that involved parent. Um, so yeah, I think you know, can we do parent training? Can we do flexible work time? Could we have an honest debate about sensible parental leave in this U.S. in the U.S. and finally catch up with you know with other wealthy countries that, that have figured that out this out a long time before we did. When parents, um, and, and again, we're talking ideal situations. We're assuming that parents know and can, and can do what's best for their children. What if a parent doesn't have that capability? I mean, people have different capabilities. People have different intellectual levels, different understanding levels. What if the parent just doesn't get it? What, are there any alternatives? Yeah. We, we mentioned extended family, but extended family isn't always an option. Do things yeah. like Boy I mean, there, there are, or Cub yeah. Scouts or anything like that, uh, Big Brother, big, you know, Big Sister programs. What, you know, what are some alternatives if parents don't get it and schools can't, don't have the time to do it all? Are there any other options? Yeah. Ah, that's a big one too. I mean, we've there there have been some small experiments in in family resource centers where parents of of young children could could come and interact with other parents and often a parent training specialist. Um, those are usually among the first kinds of programs to get cut when cut when funding cuts are made and the funds are left over only for kind of the most difficult cases in child welfare systems. But we we've got examples of what those can look like, and I think. You know, states that invest a reasonable amount in child welfare have figured out, you know, parental visitation programs um, for more stressed families, for example. Um, so, you know, I think there are examples like that. The question is, you know, do, do cities and states want to put, does the federal government want to put funds into it? We do know that some of those programs can work, but they're, as I said before, they're usually the first ones that get cut. You're more likely to find them in a place like Michigan or, or Washington than, than you are to find them in Mississippi or Texas. Yeah, uh, clearly. Wow, I have learned so much here today. Um, I want to kind of go back to our original thing, which is why some boys turn into killers. I don't think we answered that. I mean, I don't think there is one answer to that. I think we've talked about multiple answers, and some of it is just, you know, uh, luck of the draw, it sounds like. You can do as much as you can as a parent or as a teacher to mitigate possibilities, and it sounds like there are many things that we can do to help mitigate those possibilities, the idea of connections and and making connections available to young boys and uh, to letting them understand that, you know, what these rigid definitions of manhood and girlhood don't necessarily reflect reality. Um, Any final words for us if we're we're looking at uh, some solutions for this phenomenon of males, young males turning into mass murderers? You know, I think, the, again, we've, we, as we go back and look at all their stories, there's plenty and plenty and plenty of warning signs of, you know, the, the, the disconnect, the being solitary, the spending huge, amount of time, huge amounts of time alone, the, the no friends, you know, the, almost always when we've gone back and gathered the stories, there's all those warning signs. So I think, you know, the question is, how do we reach out and provide that, you know, to be be alert for those, but to be alert for them in a, I'm providing you with help, not I'm, I'm worried about, yes, I'm worried about the harm, but I think we, we've got to not sort of fall into our post-9-11 paranoia and to do it in a way that's helpful, 
not that looks at you like you're the potential um, you're about to cause harm to someone, but really to say, you know, how do we reach out that it's a help, not a I want to lock you away. Um, so I do think yeah. there's a lot of warning signs that show up. Um, so it's how do we, and but they can also be Gary, warning signs for things that are far less serious than a, than a killing. Anyway, exactly. sorry. Thank you so much, yeah. Gary. I usually end our show with a quote, and today my quote is from Robert Baden-Powell, who's the guy who started the Boy Scouts. The spirit is there in every boy. It has to be discovered and brought to light. Thank you for joining I love us. It. Join us again next All week right. for Thanks Three Women, Three Ways.